If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available right now for you to binge for free on Spotify. A quick note before we begin, this series contains some language and topics that may not be suitable for young children. What's up, dude? It's the spring of 2019, and I'm sitting in a big loft apartment in lower Manhattan. It's late at night, and I'm a little giddy, a little nervous. I'm here with my friend Michael. It's his place, and he's letting me eavesdrop on his end of a phone call. Uh, Things are good. Uh, Wife's good. Son's good. Life's good. Um... Michael has just called a guy he knows, a former clandestine officer from the CIA. The guy's just talking to Michael, but he doesn't realize I'm here, listening to Michael's end of the conversation. So, do you remember the story you told me like 10 years ago? Yeah, you know that Patrick and I have been utterly obsessed with this story for the past 10 years. And so, we've been chasing down leads, asking people. We have a full-on map of multiple different relationships trying to figure out the veracity of the story that you told. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do it in the form of a podcast. And I know that it would be difficult for you to tell it on the record, but I'm wondering if you would do it with like, um, you know, a different name and a scratchy voice and, and be interviewed. Right. Of course. Yeah. 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 No, that's true. Understood. Don't want that to happen. I do not want you to go to jail. I do not want you to be arrested under felony charges or even worse. Okay. Good chatting. What happened? He was just like, it's a felony. There's no fucking way I can tell you the story on the record with my voice, anything like I'll go to jail for this. My name is Patrick Radden Keefe. I'm a journalist. I write for The New Yorker magazine. I've written stories about drug lords and war crimes and various types of corporate skullduggery. But if there's one connective thread that runs through a lot of my stories, it's secrets. Secret worlds. Uncovering things I'm not supposed to know. A lot of journalists are driven by this. A conviction that the real story lies inside whatever literal or figurative room we're locked out of. We spend our days trying to get glimpses inside, wishing that just once, Someone would hand us the key. In 2010, I was living in Washington, D.C., and I got this strange opportunity to go work for a year on a fellowship in the office of the Secretary of Defense. The deal was I could get a top-secret clearance and sort of pass through the looking glass. I just had to agree that I would never write about any of the classified stuff I saw. I'd spent so many years thinking about all the secrets I didn't have access to as a journalist. I was excited to get into the classified computer system, this chamber of secrets, and look around. But then something funny happened. I spent that year putting on a suit every day and going to the Pentagon. But what I found was a top secret clearance is nothing. There are more than a million Americans who have top secret clearance. It turns out for the really interesting stuff, you need levels of clearance that are even higher. And the most interesting, significant national security secrets are carefully compartmented. They're confined to a tiny circle of people who need to know about them. So by the time I finished up my little sabbatical in government and gave up my security clearance, I wasn't focused so much on all the top secret stuff I'd gotten to see. 
as I was on all the other stuff, the stuff that was more secret than top secret and would always remain a mystery. It became an operating principle. There is no secret key. There's no all-access pass to the good stuff. It's the lesson we learn from children's books. Any mystery worth solving requires a journey, and the path from a riddle to its solution is almost never a straight line. From Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify, this is Wind of Change. Episode one, My Friend Michael. I should back up and tell you about Michael. His name is Michael Stender Auerbach, and he's one of my closest friends. He's got a mop of brown hair and thick framed glasses, and he dresses in that understatedly expensive style of the middle-aged hipster dad. We've known each other a long time, and I just found this email I want to read to him. So I was trying to figure out when this story began <laughs> for you and me. Yes. And it began on a Thursday, 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah. We were emailing, you and I were emailing that morning, and <laughs> you sent me an email. And the email said, had dinner last night with my good friend, and he told me some stories that will fill up your writing schedule for years. <laughs> and then you wrote, Wikipedia, I think that's a command. You're like telling me to Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia, Scorpion's wind of change. So I confess, I was kind of vaguely aware of the Scorpions as a band. Mm. I didn't know the, um, I actually didn't know the song or I was, I it kind of was familiar when I played it, right. but. Um, Did you Wikipedia it? You bet I Wikipedia it. <laughs> um, so you sent me that email that morning <laughs> and you know, that was the day my life changed. I'm sorry. The story that Michael told me about the song Wind of Change has confounded me more than anything I've ever worked on. When I started looking into it, it's like it opened a door into a lot of strange, improbable places. So improbable that normally, I'd just move on. I wouldn't even follow up. Except the idea came from Michael. And Michael's been a valuable source for me over the years. It's your view, basically, that I've never written an article that wasn't your idea. A couple, but they were, they were not the greatest articles. You probably have people like this in your life, but Michael's just one of those people who seems to know everyone, to have an opinion on every subject. I've pitched you a lot of stories. You've been a great source of ideas and of And people. even the stories that you've wanted to do, I've provided you good intel into those stories. Officially, Michael works for Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State. But so far as I can tell, he has half a dozen jobs. This is part of the reason he has so many contacts. He's in his 40s, like I am, but it's as if he's lived more lives than I have. I'm just going to, and I don't have your CV. This is purely from memory, oh, really? but I just want to uh, throw a few items at you. You were involved in Middle East peace negotiations. Yes. Prior to that, you'd been involved in the first dot-com boom. Yes. And you had a startup of some sort. Yes. And so then you end up working in business intelligence. Correct. So you then go and start working at Albright Stonebridge, which is Madeleine Albright's 
company. Yes. Whatever the State Department used to do for our government overseas, we do for corporations overseas. But Michael also has these side projects. At the time I was in Sweden, I was trying to get the U.S. government or the British government to use drones to deliver aid to Syrians in Aleppo. Okay. And now I own 90% of a Swedish drone company. <laughs> that I'm trying to like sell to like anybody, like the yeah. Egyptians, the Moroccans. If you know anybody who wants a drone company, <laughs> <laughs> there's this other thing, which is, um, can we talk about the pot? Years ago, Michael called me up and said I should write an article about the legalization of cannabis in Washington State and what it would mean for the pot economy. I wrote the article, but Michael invested in that new economy. I was having lunch with this guy. And he said, you know, the other day, for a couple of hours, your friend Michael Stender Auerbach was worth a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, there was like 15 minutes on Yom Kippur that I was worth a billion dollars. <laughs> I tell you all this so you'll understand that when Michael emailed me nine years ago and told me to look into the song Wind of Change by the Scorpions, I did. The Wikipedia entry starts like this. Wind of Change is a power ballad by the German rock band Scorpions, recorded for their 11th studio album, Crazy World, in 1990. These concerts, it's just the blood flowing in every single one of us. This is a 1988 documentary about the monsters of rock. It's not about this music that just gets us all going. An arena tour in which the Scorpions were one of the headliners. Happy Metal! Perhaps you're familiar with the Scorpions. This is Matthias Jans. This is Wilschenka. This is Klaus Meiner of the, the Scorpions. They occupy sort of a strange place in our culture. They're a band from Hanover, Germany. So they're German, but they sing in English. And our dream always was to play around the world and make music for everybody. They're sort of a hard rock or light metal band. Leather, spandex, a tsunami of hairspray. You get the idea. Come on, Fox I mean, we like to play in front of big crowds. But still, it's, it's good to go back and play in a club. That's Klaus Meiner, the lead singer. Even today, the Scorpions are hugely popular. They're the biggest German band ever. But they also built a global audience outside of Germany by doing a lot of international touring. They were one of the first Western acts to play behind the Iron Curtain. They're big in Japan. They're massive in Brazil. It's a little weird when you think about it. They're a band whose first language isn't English, singing songs in English for an audience whose first language is, for the most part, not English. But they've had a few songs that broke through in a big way in the US. Like you probably know this one. I mean, it just shows we want to rock the world. They've got one song, though, that is absolutely iconic, and that's Wind of Change. In the summer of 1989, the Scorpions played a two-day rock festival in Russia. This is during the Cold War, and rock and roll had been all but banned in the Soviet Union because the Kremlin saw it as threatening to communism. So this was a historic event with hard rock and heavy metal acts like Ozzy Osbourne, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, and Motley Crue. According to rock legend, after the concert, Klaus Meiner wrote a new song. A ballad about the change that was sweeping across Europe. 
at that time. A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. Wind of Change was released in 1990, not long after the Berlin Wall came down, and it was a monster hit. A celebration of this new policy announced today by the East German government. Down to Gonky Park, listening to the wind of change. An August summer night, soldiers passing by. The song ended up becoming the de facto anthem for the fall of the wall and the end of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. For the first time since the wall was erected in 1961, people will be able to move through freely. Across the USSR, young people were galvanized by wind of change. They copied bootleg tapes and distributed them hand to hand. The song ended up peaking on the US charts in late 1991, right around the time the Soviet Union collapsed. The Union's three Slavic republics announced they are forming a separate Commonwealth of Independent States. The chief state TV channel was halfway through its evening news when it got the first details of the agreement signed in Minsk. The Soviet Union no longer exists. I was a sophomore in high school when all this happened, and I still remember how dramatic the images were. That sense that the tempo of history had suddenly accelerated, that the political universe I'd grown up in, and my parents had grown up in, had just abruptly ended, and we were watching the curtain rise on something new. There's a great video for Wind of Change with images of the Berlin Wall coming down and the scorpions swaggering through Red Square. And I thought back to that extraordinary moment in my childhood. Don't get me wrong, the song is cheesy, but there's something about it, that earworm whistle, the message of bloodless revolution and idealism and solidarity and hope. It gets under your skin. So the reason Michael first sent me that email back in 2011 was because he just had dinner with this guy he knew. And we're gonna, we're gonna give this guy a name. What do you wanna call him? I wanna call him Oliver. Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so Oliver and I had become close. Oliver is a friend of Michael's. I can't tell you much about him, but he's about our age and he used to work in the CIA. And you guys had dinner. Yes. And what did he tell you? I remember he told me a bunch of stories, but the one that I remember the most is the one that I told you to Wikipedia, which is that he was either at the farm at the time of his training or he was at headquarters in Langley and like an older gentleman who has been around the block comes in to meet the new recruits. So a graybeard. Yeah, and tells them stories, etc. Told this story to a group of people that he was with that this song had been written by the CIA and had been a part of a PSYOPs campaign. Psychological operation. Exactly. To what? To insert this song, this music into the Soviet Union. To encourage change. <laughs> Remember, this is not just any song. 
These things are hard to measure, but Wind of Change is one of the biggest rock singles in history. It's something like the 13th biggest selling single of the pre-digital era, which means the single sold more physical copies than Bohemian Rhapsody, or Like a Prayer, or anything by Britney Spears. It may not be all that well-known inside the U.S., but in the rest of the world, the song is ubiquitous. It hit number one on the charts all across Europe. On YouTube, it's been listened to nearly 800 million times. So when I first heard this story, I was totally incredulous. Michael was, too. I was like, bullshit. I mean, like, <laughs> I was like, seriously? Like, you guys have songwriters at the CIA? <laughs> He's like, yeah. Like, we... He said yes. Yes. This particular story sounded absurd because it's a heavy metal band. <laughs> and the song, I had no idea what the history of the song was in terms of its, like, beloved admiration these countries were like obsessed with with that song and that's this particular song it was the anthem according to that wikipedia entry the song was quote composed and written by the band's lead singer klaus meine you could feel the wind of change and i guess that was the inspiration for klaus our singer to write the song the liner notes on the scorpions 1990 album crazy world say the same thing Klaus Meine has given dozens of interviews about how he was inspired by that trip to Moscow in the summer of 1989. While they were there, the band took a boat ride on the Moskva River with a bunch of other rockers, and that ostensibly gave rise to those opening lines, I follow the Moskva down to Gorky Park. I follow the Moskva down to Gorky Park. Could it be that Klaus Meine is lying? That the song was actually written by the CIA? That the CIA writes songs? The idea seemed so bonkers on its face. And yet, there's a long history, dating back to the dawn of the Cold War, of the U.S. government in general, and the CIA in particular, recognizing that propaganda doesn't work if it looks like propaganda. There's only so many hearts and minds you can change by dropping leaflets out of airplanes. At his news conference, President Eisenhower defends espionage. When Dwight Eisenhower became president in 1953, one of the first things he did was direct the U.S. government to ramp up what he called psychological warfare against the Soviets. The safety of the whole free world demands this. To be really effective, Eisenhower said, the United States should tinker in the world of culture and ideas in a manner that won't be discernible to the consumer. According to Eisenhower, and this is a quote, the hand of government must be carefully concealed. The drama of young lovers. A few years later, the Russian novelist Boris Pasternak finished his masterpiece, Dr. Zhivago. Far from the bitter guns of war. It eventually became a big Hollywood movie in 1965. This is Dr. Zhivago. But because Pasternak's book was critical of the Bolsheviks, the novel was banned by the Kremlin. After the book was published in Italy, CIA officials got a hold of a copy and decided that Pasternak's humanistic message could be leveraged as a weapon against Soviet ideology. So they printed 10,000 copies of a Russian-language edition of the book to be smuggled back into the USSR. Pasternak ended up receiving the Nobel Prize. Moscow was furious. But the agency was always careful to hide its own involvement. It was only a few years ago that the CIA finally declassified the files, boasting, and I'm quoting here, that the whole episode shows how soft power 
can influence events. If you think about the opening phase of the Cold War, culture is terribly important. That's the British writer Frances Stoner Saunders. 20 years ago, she published this landmark study on the cultural Cold War, the ways in which the CIA insinuated itself into the realm of culture, promoting certain forms of art, like abstract expressionism, and secretly funding literary magazines, like the Paris Review. The two sides are looking at each other, you know, over the fence. Weapons have been stood down for the time being, and what they are fighting with, and in fact, I would argue is the central sort of theater of the Cold War, they're fighting with culture. The Zhivago affair was what the CIA calls an influence operation. But what moves faster through the culture? A 700-page Russian novel or a four-minute power ballad with an unforgettable hook? What if in 1990, the best vector for an influence campaign was a troupe of flamboyant rockers from Hanover, West Germany? I spoke to a lot of ex-CIA folks for this project. We'll meet the first of them after this quick break. When I hear a story like this, as a journalist, I'm kind of conflicted. There's excitement, but also skepticism. After all, this was a third-hand story, something I heard from a guy who heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy. But as it happens, back when Michael originally told me the CIA wrote Wind of Change, I was living in D.C., and one of my close friends there was this guy, Phil. And I remember uh, we met on 18th Street at a bourbon bar. This is Phil. That's his actual name, but he'd prefer we not use his last name. He works at a tech company now, but back when I was living in Washington, he worked for the CIA. Those three letters are incredibly polarizing around the world, in the United States. But at a bar in Adams Morgan back in 2011, I told him the story that Michael had told me. <laughs> it is just crazy enough to have happened. I mean, in the version of this story that was relayed to me, you have people at the CIA actually writing a song. Does that seem insane to you? <laughs> in a studio in, in the bowels of, of Northern Virginia? Exactly. Um, you know, I, to the extent that I'm from the same era as Oliver and not from the Cold War era, I guess I always try and put myself in the shoes of the people who were there in that moment. And I think in that moment, it was like, nobody thought that that wall was going to come down. There were essentially attitudes of backing all horses you just make a lot of bets, and you assume some of them don't pan out, and some of them do. The phrase is usually called covert action, and that sounds very Jack Ryan and jumping out of airplanes and shooting stuff, and covert action winds up being this broad spectrum of activity. To Phil, the story seemed plausible, but how credible was it? I think if you have confidence in, in Oliver, then you should extend that confidence backwards to his anecdotes which brought me back to Oliver. Who is Oliver? Broadly speaking, there are three types of CIA officers. You've got folks like Phil, who openly work for the agency. Phil was an analyst. He sat at a desk and had business cards with his name on them that said he worked at the CIA. But many of his colleagues were operational, so they worked undercover. You've got folks that worked in the CIA under diplomatic cover. So they'll say, like, State Department. This is Michael again but they were not State Department, they were CIA. These people have official jobs in a U.S. embassy abroad. 
They're political officers or translators or they're stamping passports or they're a cultural attache. That's their official cover. But secretly, they're working for the agency. Okay, so then tell me about the non-official cover people. So then you got the NOX, right? So then those folks... So NOX stands for non-official cover. Exactly. These people, the NOX, are the Mission Impossible types, Michael explains. So they're not State Department employees, they're not government employees, they're not CIA employees, they're not, nothing. So they either have their own business or they work for a real business. They're an employee of the real business. The salary is refunded by the government. So there are certain companies... Yes. ...that knowingly... Hire NOX. I just have to pause here and say, this sort of blows my mind, that there are companies out there big companies whose names you would recognize, companies you might do business with, and they have employees scattered through the ranks who secretly work for the CIA. So if like you're like some tech company, you know, from Kalamazoo, and you're thinking about, you know, getting into fiber optic cables in Tunisia, <laughs> like you could put a knock on that. Right. You're probably wondering at this point, how does Michael know all this? Remember I mentioned he knows a lot of people. Many of them happen to be ex-spies. And one of the weird things about being a spy these days, particularly for the generation of people who flooded into the CIA after 9-11, is that a lot of them don't spend their whole careers at the agency. So say you join the CIA right out of college. At a certain point, you're ready to transition out. Try something in the private sector, maybe. So you do what anybody does in that situation. You polish up your resume. But there's a problem. Your resume says you've been doing something all this time that you haven't actually been doing. Michael mentioned this concept I hadn't heard before, rollback. It must be a CIA term of art. And while I don't think it's classified, it seems like a delicate subject. When I asked Phil about rollback, he got uncomfortable. Like, do you know this word rollback? Um, is this part of the podcast? Phil didn't want to talk about rollback. But I've since talked to other former spies about it, and Michael explained the concept. So rollback is, is when you want to leave the CIA, you're allowed to tell people that you worked at the CIA. So you apply for rollback. And so... You have to apply. You have to apply, and okay. they have to get approval. Phil wasn't undercover at the CIA, so it's fine for him to say that he worked there. But if you did work undercover, you can't tell people you worked there even after you leave. If you were an officer with diplomatic cover, for the most part, they're going to say no unless there's some really good reason why you should get rollback. But it's hard for those people, because those people weren't State Department employees. They were CIA officers. So they sort of have a fake resume. They have a fake resume, yes, 100%. Totally fake. So the dilemma for me is, like, <laughs> what job am I qualified to do, and how do I deal with the fact that when I go into interview, I'm going to be lying about experience that I don't actually have? Right. So you have two choices. You can go work for a company that will know that you weren't a State Department employee. So there are other people that were like you that are now in another company and sort of those people can talk so to each other. So it's kind of a wink and a nod. A wink and a nod. Like, yes, this is your resume, but I really know what you did. Yeah. So there's that group of people. And then another group of people are just like, I'm just going to do something new. So they come out and a lot of them like are private wealth managers, to be honest, because they're really good with people. Um, huh. And so there's probably like hundreds of CIA officers that work for like JP Morgan, Bank of America, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, as wealth managers. So this is where Michael comes in. Somewhere along the line, he got a reputation as a headhunter for ex-spooks. And so in this kind of informal 
alumni network where you get these people who are coming out and they're looking for jobs and a lot of it is based on winks and nods. It sounds like somebody like you who can decode these resumes and introduce people becomes helpful. Yeah, so I know a lot of people in sort of the business intelligence space and this is sort of that's the perfect place for these kinds of people. Anything that has to do with like, you know, talking to people and yeah. convincing them to do something. One reason I was inclined to believe the story Michael's friend Oliver told about the Scorpions is that Michael believed him. Michael knows all these ex-spies. He talks to them all the time. He doesn't tell me everything these people tell him, but he did tell me this story. And he and Oliver trust each other. But another reason is that I've met Oliver myself. Years ago, I was working on an article and Michael volunteered to introduce me to two ex-spies who might be able to help me. We met for breakfast in the dining room of this fancy hotel facing the White House. And one of those ex-spies was Oliver. You kind of yented this right. meeting. And we meet for breakfast at the Hay Adams. And do you remember this? I joined you. You were there. I was there, yeah. We meet for breakfast at the Hay Adams. And we and we there's all like four of us. Yeah, there's four of us. Yeah. It's it's me, you, another Oliver, spy. and this other guy, another ex-spy. So the four of us sat down, but right away I felt like these two guys were on edge. They were just really tight-lipped and almost visibly uncomfortable. I started wondering if maybe Michael had put them up to this, but they didn't actually want to have breakfast with me. Or maybe I'd said something wrong. And I had thought that they were going to, you know, give me some good information. And the whole thing was a disaster. Yeah. And afterwards, I remember you calling me and apologizing and saying, I'm really sorry that didn't go the way I thought it would. Apparently, right after we sat down, this woman sat down right behind me, a solo diner. And these two ex-spies immediately tensed up because they suspected she might be eavesdropping on us. You just said, like, from the moment that woman sat down, those guys were not going to tell you shit. It's true. My breakfast with Oliver did tell me one thing. He's not one for loose talk. He's a sober professional, cautious, to the point of paranoia. And nothing if not discreet. Part of what you do as a journalist is meet people and try to evaluate the credibility of the stories they tell you. Oliver struck me as so solid, though, so no-nonsense, that the Scorpion story, if it came from him, couldn't easily be dismissed. Since I first heard the story nine years ago, it became a fixation. For Michael, too, it's like every time we get together, we'll meet for lunch or have a drink after work, and this is the thing that we always end up talking about. I'll get some new idea on how to approach it, or he'll come across the name of some potential source, and we'll start furiously texting while we're making breakfast for our kids on a Saturday morning. We've made Freedom of Information Act requests and done archival research and sought out aging rockers and retired diplomats and former spies. But it's not easy. This is a story of a highly classified covert operation. If it's true, there may be only a small handful of people who know about it. And even assuming I can figure out who they are and then get to them to pose the question, there's a decent chance they'll just lie to me and deny it. Wind of Change has been this project that's simmered along in the background of other more pressing things for years. But the story was so intriguing, and the world it opened up, this strange convergence of U.S. intelligence and pop music during the Cold War, was so compelling, I could never give it up. Last year, I decided it was time to move this project to the front burner and find out if the story is actually true. There was one immediate hurdle, though, and it involved Oliver. He does not have rollback. To this day, he does not have rollback. Technically, legally, Oliver can't even tell me that he ever worked at the CIA, much less that the agency engineered a covert operation to write a hairband power ballad that would end the Cold War. But still, I wanted to find some way to talk to him about it. 
I mean, I guess what I'm wondering about is meeting him and we would change his name. Mm-hmm. We would obscure any biographical details. Mm-hmm. We could change his voice if he wanted us to. All I would want is for him to tell the Just story to as the story. he... Well, to tell the story again, yeah. yeah. Here's the thing. We're not going to be recording him. We're only going to be recording your end. But what I'm saying is, I mean, you know him better than I do. I have a feeling if you say like, hey, it's Howard Stern. You're on the air. <laughs> you know, He's probably going to freak out. But if you just say to him, hey, so look, it's a podcast. What would you think about talking on tape? And we would we would be sure to protect you. Yes. And you think he'll go for it? Uh, you don't know. I don't know. Here's what I wrestle with. We've done a fair amount of legwork and there are, you know, these setbacks when I'm like, this isn't true. It's not true. And then there are these moments where just when I've kind of given up hope that it is, suddenly there'll be some indication that it is. And then the the craziest thing is once you get into these wild stories, Mm -hmm. they kind of only make sense if it's at least somewhat true. As a general rule, and this is part of what I love about him. Michael's less skeptical than I am. It's 100% true. I asked Michael if we could call Oliver and propose a meeting. And that's how I end up in Michael's apartment, where this episode started on that night last spring. We're going to record only Michael's side of the call, and we decide to not tell Oliver I'm in the room so as not to spook him. Michael pours me a glass of wine and offers me a bag of popcorn. It's popcorn. Sriracha popcorn, boom, check a pop. All right, can I have it? Yeah, you can have it. <laughs> we keep our voices down because Michael's son is asleep in the next room. So, okay, so what's our, what's our game plan here? You've made an appointment to talk to him? I mean, I've texted him. All right, I think we do this. Let's do that. While I eat popcorn, Michael dials. Calling Oliver. Here we go. Oliver, Oliver. And Oliver picks up. What do you mean, am I? Are you still alive? (laughs) Like a good CIA officer recruiting a source, Michael's not going to come out with a big ask right away. No fucking way. No way. That's wild. That's pretty awesome. He needs to work around to it, casually. So they banter for a while. Yeah. Crazy. Which then leads me to my, which leads me to a question I have for you. Michael reminds Oliver about the story. So, do you remember the story you told me like 10 years ago about the band? We have a full-on map of multiple different relationships trying to figure out the veracity of the story that you told. And so, no, no, I understand. It's uh, that you were told by, you know, let's call him Greybeard. You were told by this guy named Greybeard, right? So... What we're going to do is interview the folks that did the concert, interview folks that were in the intelligence services during that period of time, um, hopefully get to the end where we've uncovered something like it's either just a great story and it ends without ever knowing, or we actually uncover that the story is really true and this is what happened. And so you were the genesis of this, and I know that, you know, the... I know that it would it would be difficult for you to tell it on the record, but I'm wondering if you would do it with like um, you know a different name and a scratchy voice and and be interviewed. (laughs) 
Well, the upside, the upside is the truth, man. <laughs> right. Right, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. What? Hence the reason I called you. Of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. I can't hear the words that Oliver's saying, but I can hear the sound of his voice through the phone. And he appears to be freaking out. Michael's tone has totally changed. He's in full tilt reassurance mode. Do not worry. Understood. Don't want that to happen. I, I, I do not want you to go to jail. I do not want you to be arrested under felony charges or even worse. So I don't want you to go to jail with, uh, <laughs> with Julian Assange at all. Um, anyway, um, awesome. Cool, man. Okay, good chatting. I'll talk to you soon. Michael hangs up. Sorry, dude. <laughs> Not gonna happen. Tell me everything. Um, what happened? He was just like, it's a felony. There's no fucking way I can tell you this story on the record with my voice, anything. Like, I'll go to jail for this. You know, like any story but this story. Can't do it. Fuck. Really? He got very sensitive and, uh, and said, dude, I, I can't. It's felony. I'll go to jail for a long time. And then he reiterated at the end, it's like, I hope you understand, like, you can never talk about me in relationship to this story. Right. It is not something I should have told you. I was just listening to your side of the conversation, but it seemed like when you said, like, do you remember when you told me the story and he was like, well, did he say something like, well, it wasn't me who told you, or it wasn't, I didn't tell you what happened, or he, I told you that somebody told me or yeah, something? Yeah, no, he made it clear that uh, he wasn't involved in the story. He <laughs> because was he child. was 12 at the time. Um, Shit. Sorry, dude. Any investigation has a certain rhythm. You have a breakthrough, then it's followed by a setback, and you're tempted to just quit, but you know you have to keep pushing until you break through once again. Oliver's refusal to talk to us, even if we shielded his identity, was a definite setback. I really wanted to hear him tell the story himself, to see if there were other details he remembered about the context of the story or the identity of the agency old-timer who told it. At the same time, though, the panic Oliver expressed, the sheer alarm I could hear on the other end of that phone, the idea that there are other stories he could tell, but not this one, because this one's too important, too secret. It's the story that can't be told. Leave me feeling strangely energized, like we're onto something, like there's something real here, and we have to figure it out. Why is it this, this is so sensitive? Did he explain that, or just? No. There are other stories I could tell you, not this one this season on Wind of Change. I'd say that Wind of Change is one of the most important songs in music history. This is nothing you could ever take away from the Scorpions. I went to, um, this is off the record. Now we're back on the record. You just got a building full of people that traffic in secrets. That's what she wants to know. Are you a spy? Are you working for the Russians? It's always a precarious situation when you're going back to the Colombians and telling them you lost 30,000 pounds of their pot. He walks into one of the bedrooms and pulls open the bottom drawer. He said, that's a million dollars. 
<laughs> Did it seem like normal to you? Then? No, but it was the end of the Cold War. I think it's a knowable thing you could get there. I'm not convinced you should. You don't have to be like Sherlock Holmes to figure out that some deal was made. They love conspiracy stuff. The more complicated and complex, the more they're likely to grasp onto it. And I was like, holy shit, man, we're going to friggin' Russia. Wind of Change is an original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. The show is written and hosted by me, Patrick Radden Keefe. The senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Associate producers, Natalie Brennan and Ben Phelan. Joel Lovell is our editor. Consulting producer, Michael Strender-Auerbach. Sound design and mixing by Henry Malofsky. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Our music supervisor is Jonathan Feingold. This episode featured Drift by Ratatat, courtesy of XL Records, and St. European King Days by Opium Flirt, courtesy of CD Baby. The executive producers of Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. At Crooked Media, executive producers Tommy Vitor, Sarah Wick, and Sarah Geismer. And from Spotify, executive producers Liz Gately and Jake Kleinberg. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Allison Falsetta, Josh Yaffa, William East, Xenia Barakovskaya, Maddie Sprunkheiser, Eric Menel, Jonathan Menhivar, Courtney Harrell, Jifa Yadur, Jesse McLean, Paul Spella, Bianca Grimshaw, Saiswa Skandaraja, Jonah Weiner, and Justina Gudzowska. Source material in this episode included the Monsters of Rock 1988 documentary, the Moscow Music Peace Festival documentary, NBC News, ABC News, the Frida Rock documentary, British Pathé, Dr. Zhivago, and tell us If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available right now for you to binge for free on Spotify. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.